Welcome again. It's another Chest Hair Friday on a Wednesday. We're recording a podcast today in New Orleans with Greg Janukas. Greg, thanks for coming down. And Greg and I met randomly over the weekend, and as we were sitting here thinking this would be kind of fun to record a podcast, we thought, why don't we trace all the things it took to get Greg in my living room? <laughs> so Greg is a rock and roll photographer. Uh, what, what else kind of, what other work do you do? I know you do a lot I, of rock I work. I do some fashion editorial and lifestyle editorial for specific motorcycle culture. Um, traditionally in the, in the classic American-built Harley-Davidson chopper scene. But I, I do some commercial work within that scene that, that caters to a more modern motorcycle rider and enthusiast. Uh, but then some fashion editorial work. Um, and then I, I do a lot of uh, private stuff that I, I just do to keep sharp and, and to kind of stay connected with the craft. Without suggesting that there is some minimum number necessary, how many photos do you think you take on a regular day? Oh, man. That really is touch and go based on what I have the opportunity to shoot and how well prepared I am for that moment. If something arises kind of, you know, just journalistically something happens, uh, I usually only get one to 10 shots uh, before I've affected that moment by either capturing the attention of what I'm shooting or by the fact that it just was happening so quickly in real time that I only got a few moments to to consider it and shoot it. Before it was gone. Yeah, for sure. Um, If it's kind of a planned shoot where, hey, I'm going to go shoot a band. I've had nights where, for some reason, the kismet occurred and that one moment was captured in five frames and I just, I went to sleep after that. You know, like, <laughs> okay, I'm done. My work's done here. Because you know when you've got it. But some nights I've had to shoot upwards of 500 shots, you know, and it just depends on whether I'm shooting film or digitally. Uh, with digital, it's so much more forgiving to just spray and pray if you need to. If you're not feeling it, or if that moment just isn't happening, and you have to find it, you have to find a way to capture one shot that's going to say it all. And if they're not giving it to you, you've got to find a way to position them between you and the lighting to create that drama in the environment rather than in the subject. And you mentioned kind of affecting the moment, and I there was the original kind of reality TV show, and I don't remember what it was called, but they made a movie about it with James yeah, Gandolfini. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And Family in California. Yeah, it was a family in California yeah. where they just turned on the cameras, and it immediately raised a question that I think is still interesting, which is how much is it reality when someone has a camera on it? And so when you were saying that sometimes you can affect the moment where you know you might get five or ten shots, and then there's almost an awareness of your subject. Yeah. They're being photographed. And how do you see like a change in people where it's, it's involuntary. You can't help it. Um, I think especially in this day and age, it's become something people are much more keen to and aware to on a uh, subconscious level. You notice that like people have phones on them all the time. And now people are always aware and ready for that. Whereas before the cell phone, you know, f- camera era, People were a little more lax about it, and they didn't. They, they weren't as conscientious of it, and so there weren't those immediate triggers to the mind. They're like, "Hey, that guy just lifted a camera on me," or "I'm being focused," you know. So, I think more so now, it's really hard to get a very original moment that isn't affected by the viewer. Um, we're all sort of trained yeah, almost. We, we, to... we have an involuntary knee-jerk reaction that's like, let me grab my camera. Well, that also triggers the, oh shit, he's reaching for his weapon. You know? And it's like, <laughs> he's oh, about shit, to draw. I'm about to get shot. <laughs> and, and it is that instinctual, I think, in some moments. 
And especially when you're working in an environment where people are aware that they're the subject and the focus of great attention, like, uh, you know, a rock star. You did not begin photography as a lot of people do, sort of as a passion that you start as a younger person and sort of slowly grow into becoming a professional photographer. No. How did you get started shooting? Uh, well, I, I was invited to do the reading at a wedding down in Mexico and decided, well, I'm going to be down there a week and I don't really know everybody that's going to be there. Uh, even though the bride and groom are very dear friends of mine, I just decided to take a camera and, you know, I'd make that kind of my special interest on the side when I got bored with the drinking and the party and I'd have a camera to play with. And uh, at the end of that wedding, uh, a week later, I sent an album to them and and uh, they forwarded it on to about 500 people on their guest list. It was a big wedding. And I started to get these emails from strangers that were like, man, you've got a great eye. You really ought to think about doing this. And, and I kind of took that to heart because I wasn't stoked on what I was doing at the time. I was uh, selling and designing awnings for a family business in Houston um, and, and exterior uh, shade uh, products. Was that like a door-to-door or you know, it did you really do a lot of cold wasn't. calling or no, did people come to you and you would go out? My mom had started this business maybe 25 years prior to me taking the job with, with uh, the business after my brother had bought it from her. Um, and he and I were looking at buying another company that we were going to merge together that was exterior signs and awnings. Um, so I was about to commit to a, a very long investment of time and money and interest and you know started looking for homes in Houston uh, I was about to be married to, to my wife, um, and it was just like, it was becoming apparent to me that I was about to sign on to something that my heart wasn't involved in, and at that time, I was getting all this reinforced motivation that was like, hey, buy a fucking camera, learn how to do this thing for real, these people think I got a shot, <laughs> I don't know him at all, but I trust him or I want to, you know, because I yeah. didn't want to do what I was about was, to do. It was almost like you could see a crack of light through, Fuck, through a the tunnel sort of darkness. Of, I didn't know it was the like, train yeah. for me, but, <laughs> but I was running at it, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I bought a camera and I set it to manual and, and, and I started shooting. And uh, it, it was about six months in that I realized I needed a vocabulary. So I had to Google what F-stop and ISO meant. And I have started, no idea what those things okay, mean. Okay, well. ISO is, is uh, it's a term used to describe how fast your film reacts to light. So it's your film speed. Uh, ISO is the digital equivalent to your okay. exposure index. Which so the is, higher the speed, what, what the changes? Higher the, the higher the, the ISO or box rating on the, on the film, the faster it will react to the amount of light it's exposed to. Um, so it... it it's one of the three variables in your exposure triangle, which would be your shutter speed, your aperture, and your film speed, what have been traditionally in film photography. In digital, it's ISO is your equivalent to film speed. Uh, so those three variables can be interchanged in any number of ways, back and forth, one affecting the other. Uh, and, and you can create a style and a subject or a context uh, within whatever it is you're photographing based on how you manipulate those three variables. They all interrelate and they all work independently of one another but have an effect on each other. It's like putting a puzzle together it almost really to is. get the shot really that you want. It really is. You just have to figure out how you're going to contextually structure it based on, well, I want really sharp focus and really s stopped motion so you know you can 
tighten down your aperture to give you a very deep depth of field of focus, you know, so the depth from your lens is in focus for a much deeper space. Uh, And then you can speed up your shutter speed to stop that motion, you know, and that'll give you sharp, crisp edges. Or you can slow down that shutter, which will allow more light to come in, you know, because you're exposing it for longer. Uh, and then you also get some motion blur, which will give you that emotion of movement, and, and you'll feel like you're witnessing the movement, even though you're, even though it's still, it's a compressed two-dimensional image. You, you start to feel like there's so much happening. You sort of had that kind of technical digression of how a camera works, yeah, which is really interesting because I, I I have no idea, yeah. But that that sort of raises a question of kind of instinct versus technique. And you were kind of working your way there where, you know, on one hand, you see something, you pull up your camera, you take the shot and you capture it. On the other, you know, it may take a whole bunch of knowledge and twisting knobs and doing all that. <laughs> like what what balance do you find is sort of like because those people, those 500 yeah, people that saw it. those pictures, I get it. they could yeah. tell you had good photographic instincts. Yeah, right. And, and what have you worked on to sort of hone that into, you know, from sort of an instinctive thing to a real craft? Well... I think the first part was trying to find comfort in the instinctive thing. Uh, for so many years, I worked on it intentionally, and until I got the fuck out of the way, I wasn't really satisfied with it. But I had to get to a point where I was no longer suffering from the human condition more than I was the faith that what I'd learned was valuable, uh, and that it was, it was there was room for my perspective uh, in this craft or in this trade so sort of feeling like comparing yourself to others and saying do i have something to say in this medium it's it's debilitating you know for people that want to be photographers but can't get over themselves you sometimes just got to get out of the way and allow your instincts to be what they are because it's for me it's pretty primal when i'm shooting journalistically it has nothing to do with me you know it's me getting into position and finding that thing but i'm not trying to affect the moment so i'm dealing with the natural environment as it is, the subject and their movements and their focus as it is. Um, and I don't want to affect that. I want to let it be what it is so that I can be that guy that just was there witnessing and I can create a voyeuristic effect for the viewer. And that really translates in a way that's like, dude, I, f- I fucking felt like I was there when I see your shots. And that, I get that. And I think it's one of my most proud things is when it's like, when I'm not even affecting it people can tell it's my shot and people love the way I showed it to them and that I was granted access to be there, which is the hardest thing to get in photography is to be accepted uh, as trustworthy and safe uh, to the people that allow you to come into those private spaces. Yeah. And that that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, I think, where once the camera is out, what happens to the people in front of it? (laughs) Depends on who knows you, you know, (laughs) because if they know you, they're cool with it. Uh, or they're not cool with it, depending on you again. But to finish that other part of your question, your last question, when it's portraiture and it's much more of a controlled environment and it's much more of a collaboration and a sharing, then it goes back to like, what do you know? And how well can you convert back and forth? Because I don't believe in multitasking. I believe you're either focused in one point and then you switch quickly back and then switch you know, back to what you're doing. How can you get to what you know uh, technically while maintaining a connection with the subject or the person that is focused on you for comfort 
you know, because most people don't like a camera jammed in their face. I know I fucking hate it. <laughs> you know, I can't, it's part of my language, but I can't stand You're good. We have the, okay. we have an explicit rating. Don't I worry. I figured T-Han was here before. T-Han was here before you. Um, so I figure if I can make them comfortable, then if they can see my vulnerability, they'll be willing to share theirs with me in a more comfortable way. Um, it quickly becomes apparent that everybody's affected by the camera lens, especially when you're looking right at it and, it, and you're focused in a beam of light. There's darkness around you. You can hardly see out, and all you can see when you do is this camera facing you and some guy talking to you from the back of it. Um, in those moments, it really is about technical understanding and I think just a casual ease with people and, and a presence because everything I do requires that I be present uh, whether it's present and primal or present and conscientious, uh, you know, less instinctual, a little bit more methodical, patient. And even when I talk about it, man, I start to get more calm. Yeah, you're slowing down. <laughs> yeah, you hear that? You're getting into, so, your, you're getting into your groove of, cool, of kind of, yeah. Take that shirt Go off, Go slow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like this. music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. This is working I, for I me. I think it really is a matter of just you've got to get used to those things and you've got to allow them to be what they are and get the hell out of the way of them. Because had I not had that moment of understanding of this moment, I couldn't have put myself in that place intentionally. And then to trust it requires some practice in it. So it, it is a, a meditation of, of mindlessness sometimes, but also knowing when to click the mind back in, maintain that vibe, because if you see it breaking down, you've got to pull it back somehow. If somebody starts to get anxious you've got to see that and know that it's time to take a break yeah back off a little yeah, bit you know like there's there's it's a shared thing so I, I really feel like you have to do the work to get to that comfort level um and i i put in four years before i fell in love with my work and i'm still falling in love with it because there's still things that i'm learning and wanting to learn so i'm never apathetic about it and i'm never totally comfortable in it and i hope i never am um because it it becomes a challenge and it becomes exciting. It, it's it's a total fucking turn on, man. You mentioned movement, and it's something I've always appreciated, especially when you see people who have a film background that also are photographers. I, I find people that do both of those things really interesting because they seem to have a natural sense of the movement. Yeah. And your sort of main subjects are musicians and motorcycles. Which are also fairly very um, kind of yeah. and very kinetic. There's a lot of yeah. movement involved totally. in, in both of those things. And so, what what draws you as a photographer to those subjects? Is it their inherent your inherent interest in music and bikes, or is there something even more beyond that, just from the the movement of it and your joy of capturing it? Well, I mean, I've always been romantic about both. Um, just in love with them, the culture. Uh, the way, I mean, shit, I can't play a tune or carry one to save my life, and I can hardly find the beat when I'm trying to dance. Um, but I live a life in pursuit of song and, and the people that perform and sing and play it. So uh, clearly there's something that I'm, I'm deeply connected to, and I can, I can hear a song and remember smells. You know, I can remember what car I was in and who I was driving and what girl I was in love with. You know, based on a song, it transports me to a certain moment, an era, 
And then the, the photography uh, that came from those songs and, and Jim Marshall and Bob Gruen and uh, my friend Danny Clinch, who is one of the reasons why I'm still here in New Orleans right now, uh, those guys, they shot some of the greatest people that I ever fell in love with music from, you know? And it was like, man, I just was so romantically involved in this idea and this feeling that even though I can't play music, I still follow it and love it to a point where I want to tell its story and I'm somehow become involved in it even in some ways uh, my recent project in creating or creating the space that allowed people to create music in which allowed me a way to journalistically document it without manipulating what was being produced by the artists just giving them a loving space uh, and a physical space for them to come together and create something original uh, artists that had never met one another so, um, it's been a wild, wild experiment of where is this going to go? Where is it going to take me? And what am I going to serve? How am I going to serve it rather than it just being something that I take from? Um, so for me, music, uh, has been something that's given me so much that i just want to give back to it. I want to be part of it so badly. Uh, but in a way that's like, you can't take from this thing. Because once you start to pull without an equal desire to give, you'll be cut out of it because these people are so vibe. Yeah, that's a, it's got to be a balance because their music is very, it's the same song, but it can mean different things and even yeah. can be played differently, totally. even though it's the same song. Yeah. And so, you know, it is all about that kind of vibe and the moment and yeah. kind of feeding off of of the energy that's coming at you as you're giving it out. Yeah. And I can definitely, you know, where if you're the photographer, you know, your job, like you said, it's not, you're not taking anything as much as just seeing what they're giving off and then trying, you know, your best to capture what that looks trying like. To translate it to people that weren't there. When we started this interview, we were kind of like, how did you end up in my living room? Oh, yeah. So we, so we met this weekend in Florida. <laughs> Before that, you were in Nashville. And, and you've kind of been on were a... Were we in Florida or were we in... We were in both. Alabama. We were on the border. The Alabama Gulf Coast is... Yeah. We, we were We were in both at different times. Yeah. We crossed over the border a few times on the boat. But we were we were out Not there. Not necessarily drug running, but we were doing what drug runners do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we Going from place to place, crossing borders. Without, on, yeah. yeah no cares. Yeah. On dodging the law. By water. <laughs> so yeah, what brought me out to to this living room? But was, you've been on yeah, you've been on kind of a journey. Yeah. It started in Nashville, correct? Well, or was there even before that? Or man, this? I've been on a journey for a long time, man. I am a journeyman. This, this particular sub-journey yeah, yeah. began. I'd say that this particular trip that specifically landed me, I started to consider the idea of shooting the Dylan Fest, which was uh, one of the best fests, uh, organized shows that they did at the Ryman for two nights. And they have all these different guests come out and they perform all Bob Dylan's music on Bob Dylan's birthday. Um, and then the following night as well. And so it was like a two night festival and I was given all access to shoot anywhere, any way, anything I wanted. So, uh, I decided the night before around five in the evening that I would buy my plane ticket to leave at seven in the morning the next day. <laughs> and I didn't know how long I was going to be gone. I just knew I was flying one way to Nashville and I was going to find a ride home. You'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Let's, you know, put it in fate's hands. Of course, you know, let's, uh, let's just make sure that I'm the man that I needed to be to handle whatever got thrown my way or whatever options came up. I would decide in the moment and kind of go with the flow. 
Um, and uh, I started reaching out, and my friend Sarah Trapp was out there for a week, and, and she was going to be driving back from Nashville through the Florence to Scumbia Muscle Shoals area in Alabama, and then on to Austin from there. And I had never been to Muscle Shoals, but that area is, is really a heart and soul place for American music, and international music has even come to record there. Sure. That, uh, notoriety, that, you know. Notoriety. Yeah, that's some of the greats, and, and yeah, yeah. we've had, we had the privilege of seeing, they made, they made that documentary yeah, about yeah. Muscle Shoals, Such and we were there when they did the debut in Muscle Shoals. What? And so we actually got to, like, a bunch <laughs> so of the folks who were cool. in it were taking questions afterwards. Was Jimmy Cliff there? Uh, no, Jimmy Cliff did not make it. <laughs> Jimmy Cliff was not available. That would have been so good. No, there, there were some, some of the swampers the were there. Again. Oh, sick. And uh, the gentleman with the great mustache. I'll tell you what, I'll cheat and I'll the Google this. Great mustache. He had a really good like hand. He had like a like a Raleigh finger style. You know what? I'm sitting at a computer yeah. rather than uh, rather than be lazy. Well, let me let me uh, while you're looking for that. Yeah. Um, so I decided I have to go through Muscle Shoals. Um, some friends of mine had recorded the Fame Studio there in Muscle Shoals, which is you know where Aretha Franklin and uh, Rolling Stones. Yeah, the Sticky Fingers, one of my favorite albums, was recorded down in the Shoals. Uh, so I wanted to see. Uh, Muscle Soul Sound Studio and Fame Studio, and I was I was given some private time thanks to Sarah Trapp. She made some phone calls, and between the tours of 30, 40 people walking through the studios, they closed the doors and allowed me to take some photos in there by myself. So that was very cool. That's kind of a cathedral of oh man, I, American I, I get music. chills just thinking about it right now. I got chicken skin. So it's it really for me is one of those things that was just like oh my god, thank God I didn't buy a two way trip home and. You know, I decided to just get out on the road. And while we were there, she said, well, I asked about our friend Shelly Colvin, uh, a performer that also lives in Nashville. But uh, And we decided we'd give her a call, and she happened to have been down at Orange Beach this weekend at her husband's family's place. Uh, and so we were like, well, maybe we should go down there. I mean, why not keep this thing I going? Like the beach, you know? And so we were like, okay, we'll get back to Austin eventually. Let's head to Orange Beach and see where that goes. Um, and so, uh, we headed down and lo and behold that night we ended up on a party boat, party barge. uh, (laughs) On the old party barge. You ever heard that Silver Jew song, Party Barge? I haven't. It's, it's great. And I, I can't find it anywhere. It's like, it it no longer exists digitally. You'd have to go find the record. You gotta find the record and burn it. And, and yeah, exactly. And I have a, I have a turntable that does that. And I may actually break it out just so So I can have Party Barge to listen to on a boat. Because I'm not dragging a record player <laughs> onto a boat. That's yeah, ridiculous. It kind of wobbles a bit. <laughs> wobbles a bit. So uh, I would say that uh, that night was, for me, just such a relaxing, centering place. I've just been on the road so much. Sometimes it's really hard to find home. Um, but somehow, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Florida, we won't get into which side of the which side we, we were, were on. on. Yeah. We don't want anyone to know specifically. Yeah. Uh, but I'm calling one of those home. Um, I seem to have found this really great moment in the night that I just felt completely at home on the road with these people that I was with who I'd never met before. So uh, in in doing that, we decided, well, maybe we should go to New Orleans and and Sarah could show some of Butch Anthony's work while she's here. Uh, Yes, Sarah is a traveling Butch dealer. If you you like Butch Anthony's work, (laughs) check out his Instagram and then find her. But uh, I, I called people and was like, you my butch dealers in town. If you want to come by, get yourself a piece. <laughs> Make sure that Butch Anthony's an artist. She's yes. not, she's not peddling she- butch dudes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. down here to the bears. In down New here Orleans. to the bears of New Orleans. Yeah. I would yeah. say that they're well stocked on butch dudes yeah, down here in New Orleans. Are. 
Um, and so you came to New Orleans, and you mentioned that Danny Clinch was one of those reasons. Yeah. And so what's your plan while you're well, here? Well, Danny, Danny's been a really kind guy to me uh, who I met. And I, I met Danny a couple years back. I guess we should say he's a, a very well-known music photographer. Danny Clinch is possibly the most prolific rock photographer since the British invasion, arguably. Uh, and coming down here, I know that Danny's worked closely with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And I've always wanted to first set foot in the place, and secondly, to be allowed to photograph in that place is really difficult to be given access. Uh, somebody either has to vouch for you, or your work has to speak for itself. In my case, somebody had to vouch for me. Um, and I would Danny say it was, was probably a, a combination. Uh, all the vouching in the world. Danny spoke for me because <laughs> yeah. I think he respects that I'm I'm this guy that's trying to honor the things that he honors in a, in a similarly selfless way. Um, and I think mind that, you, we're all in it to make some money. Sure, but it's it's a secondary thought, you know. It's You're not people that both of y'all are people that the artists can trust. Yes, and I think that's sure. what it comes down to. I mean, we're sort of using a lot more words to describe what yeah, really comes yeah. down to just like a trusting relationship I, between yeah, a photographer I think game and a subject. Recognizes game for sure. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and I met Danny at, working with Gary Clark Jr. very closely, who he had just shot the John Barbados campaign that season, I think it was 2012 or 13, he just shot Gary and Jimmy Page were Barbados' uh, models uh, for that season's line. And Danny, of course, gets the call to shoot rock and roll and fashion at that high level. Um, and he's been working hand-in-hand hand with Barbados for a long time. Um, so we, we met in the photo pit at Barbados's Bowery Salon, which is like his couture salon, uh, which happens to be the same exact location that was CBGB nightclub, um, the famed punk rock yes, scene in Soho. I think we mentioned on a former podcast that it's just, we were talking about the changes happening in cities. How, <laughs> how is it possible that the CBGB <laughs> yeah. closed? Well, for that night, they turned it back into an insane rock show, but nobody was slinging poop or puking in the corners <laughs> and shooting up heroin that night at the club. At the club. But... Uh, it was jam-packed and probably the closest thing I'll ever experience to a punk show or rock show at CBGB. Um, Vintage Trouble opened uh, and Gary headlined that private party. And as Gary was playing three songs in, the bouncer at the little tiny velvet rope photo pit was kicking everybody out. And as we were walking out, Danny right next to me, he pointed at Danny and he pointed at me and said, you and you are allowed to stay. And... I'm carrying a Leica film camera, wearing a fedora, and I look over at Danny with his Leica film camera in his fedora, which is really his costume, not mine. Uh, and he looks at me like, who the fuck is this dude? And I'm like, I throw my hands up like, I don't know, bro. <laughs> you know? I'm not sure what we're doing in here yeah. together, yeah. And then we went on to shoot, and as we're shooting, uh, I tapped Danny on the shoulder when I realized that I'd left four rolls of film in the cab, rookie move, uh, and was like, hey man, can I buy a roll of film? And he's like, what? Can I buy a roll of film? He's like, oh, yeah, sure, dude. And he, he reaches in his pocket and he hands me a roll of film. And at that time, it was my first time to shoot film at a live performance. And I didn't know that my camera wasn't going to have a light meter. And I was there just kind of exposed, naked and alone without film. And Danny tossed me a roll of film, a 400 ISO film. And that's a slower daylight speed of film. But an experienced shooter would know that you can push and pull film speeds. You just have to shoot the whole roll at that rating. And then you tell your developer at what rating you shot it, and they will affect the developing times based on what you're trying to get. So 
when he handed me that film at my novice level of understanding, I, I thought that it was like Yoda slapping Luke Skywalker in the face with some shit he wasn't going to be able to use. Like, here you go, bro. Hold on to this for me. Yeah, I bet it's an old film yeah. in the bag somewhere. I yeah. some of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah, so shoot this well. I realized I had four frames left, and I shot them all of Danny shooting Gary. And I was like, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take pictures of this guy because he, he really is a huge inspiration. I had no idea I was going to see him that night. And after the show, I realized, okay, well, I've got some film at the hotel. I'll, I'll, I'll hand him off a roll of 3200 because I'm going to see him at Madison Square Garden two nights from now at what then was going to be the Eric Clapton Crossroads Festival uh, that Gary was also playing, and I was up in New York with Gary. So I knew I'd see him eventually, and I'd subtly and respectfully hand him the film that I expected to receive, but it did not receive. Uh, with my limited understanding of what he was actually offering, I took it as a, as a well-understood and well-deserving lesson and humbled myself uh, to just, you know what? He's right. Don't forget your fucking film in the cab. Don't be a rookie. And just keep shooting. <laughs> but maybe in the daylight, bro. <laughs> but maybe in the daylight. Yeah. And so, so this evening you are, or I hate when I do these things like this evening because, yeah, yeah. you know, but you are headed to Preservation I, Hall I am on to Danny's Hall. recommendation. Yeah, yeah. I, I reached out to Danny because I wasn't able to get access through any other referred or suggested avenues. And Danny's in Dublin uh, when he receives my text and he's like, dude, I'm in Dublin. I'd love to reach out. Let me, let me see what's going on. Uh, and so he reached out and offered uh, to help me out. So uh, quickly he gave me somebody's number and I reached out to that guy and that guy quickly took the ball and, and has arranged now for me to be able to go shoot at Preservation Hall with Ben Jaffe and Charlie Gabriel present playing with the full band. So I'm, I'm, I'm elated, dude. I can't even tell you how, how stoked I am about all day today. I think, and I think we're going to tag along and so. enjoy the show. Yeah. Um, where can people see some of your work, and and what's the best way if people are? Is it your Instagram? What? <laughs> yeah. Well, Instagram is probably my strongest social media presence. But Instagram is just my name at Greg Giannukas, which is Greg G R E G. We'll we'll tag you in a yeah. promo picture cool. so that we all uh, so we can find yeah. you. Cool. And uh, is there anywhere? So after New Orleans, probably Austin, but who knows? May, well, make, may make a stop or two. I've got to go back. to Houston and then on to Austin, um, and that has to happen very quickly. But then once I get to Austin, I've got to go to Dallas uh, for, unfortunately, a funeral, but also to shoot uh, two performers who are playing that night. And the very next morning, I'm supposed to haul ass down to Houston to hang out with Nick Bockrath from Cage the Elephant. I'm just working that triangle of... Really, man. Of Texas big yeah, cities, yeah. The Texas triangle. The of, Texas triangle. Yeah. Well, I, Greg, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for Dude, for agreeing pleasure. to come on, and it's just been fun hanging out for the last <laughs> few days. Yeah. I've enjoyed that we've gotten to be part of your photo road trip from Dude. through the South. It's been such a and uh, if you see Greg at a show, say hello. Please do. And in the meantime, we'll uh, we'll have some of your work. I'm sure we'll share some from tonight yeah. on Chester Friday, so people can Sick. see what we've been talking about. Oh yeah, and. <laughs> Thank you again for coming. This has been great. <laughs> we'll see y'all.